Hey, hey, so today I'm going to talk about deconstruction, specifically what it is and what like Derrida is on about. Now, I'm doing this because in a couple weeks I'm going to start presenting Of Grammatology, which is Derrida's kind of first uh, full length book, which I hope this will be some kind of an introduction for because deconstruction is a really big deal in that text and throughout the course of his work. Now, before jumping into it, if you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want, you can help me out by liking, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends, who knows, they might like it. Uh, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal. Obviously, no pressure. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you can find the video on YouTube. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads or anything, which is obviously better. Now, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's jump into talking about deconstruction. I think it's important that we start out by establishing what deconstruction is not before we establish what it is. That's because what it is is always in contention, not because there are different perspectives as to what it is, but Derrida is very clear that deconstruction is something that, I guess, motivates constant undoings, constant transformations. So what it is not. It is not the act of taking apart an argument to demonstrate some weak points within the argument, at least not in the Derridian sense. You can use that term deconstruction to do that operation, but it wouldn't be Derridian. We wouldn't be using it in Derrida's sense. So it's important to really distance ourselves from assuming that it is about taking apart, deconstructing an argument. Now, what is it? What is deconstruction? Well, there are a few necessary components to something before it can be deconstructed or analyzed via a deconstructive lens. And that is, or one of them, is the existence of a binary. So we apply deconstruction against some binary. So let's just shoot out a few. Uh, the binary between nature and culture, between speech and writing, between man woman, between heterosexual, homosexual, just any kind of binaries that permeate in our daily life. So the deconstructive method looks at a binary and begins to identify the ways that the two sides of the binary are not nearly as separate as we are wont to think. So in a superficial way, I'm not saying this is what deconstruction looks like, but in a superficial way, we often mix binaries. For example, we might think of a term like urban jungle as just the meeting of city life with um, maybe more natural life between nature and culture. And these things can be superimposed on one another. And this, is, again, is a very superficial way to look at deconstruction by demonstrating how they aren't quite as separate as they like. In fact, they aren't quite as separate as we think. In fact, they fold in on one another quite a bit. But let's just take that as a kind of first step to deconstruction, demonstrating that the two sides of a binary can in fact uh, be superimposed onto one another, and they aren't always already kept apart. Now I should say that the process of deconstruction, Derrida lays it out as being kind of like a two-step process, and I'm, I'm expanding it a little bit here just to make it, in my mind, a little bit more accessible. So recognize there to be some distance between what Derrida lays out and how I'm attempting to explain it here. 
So we've established there's this kind of superficial way to look at deconstruction, which is a good operation to demonstrate the two sides of a binary aren't quite as separate as we like to think. Now the next step would be to ask, well, is one side of the binary dependent upon the other? Is it possible for either side of a binary to exist on its own? And the simple answer is no. One way we can think about this is that it's impossible to know what lightness is if we didn't have darkness, or to know what warmth is if we didn't have cold. But of course, these are relative categories. Darkness is not a universal thing that is not contingent upon being light. In fact, you need the two of them in order to recognize one or the other. So if we have two sides of a binary like this, we begin to see now that the split between them isn't um, set in stone. It's always moving and shifting. There's always a kind of fluidity between there, uh, the way that they are kind of framed. That is how the binary itself is framed. Take another example like gender between men and women. The kinds of cultural markers that would determine whether someone fell into the camp of being a woman or being a man has shifted a great deal over the course of time. For a long time, it was fine for men to wear long skirts and form like kilts or something. Uh, women were not allowed to wear pants for the longest time because that was a masculine thing, but now we don't really look at it that way. Uh, facial hair for a long time was something that was seen as being um, associated with a kind of animality in men and therefore being closer to nature and therefore having more of like a feminine side, which is, might seem totally strange, but just the history of this process has undergone some pretty amazing transformations, which demonstrates that this binary between the two isn't like set in stone. It's always moving and one side is contingent upon the other. Now the next step in my mind takes an, another step further and it says, well, what is a binary? Do, do binaries exist in nature? If I look in nature, do I see binaries? Do animals and plants and clouds work via binaries? Or do binaries come about in a certain phase of human evolution as a way for us to kind of make sense of the world and to impose a kind of command over it? So Derrida thinks about this problem in terms of nature and culture. And for a more kind of developed uh, discussion of that, check out the episode I did on structure, sign, and play, where he, where he develops this a lot more. But Derrida says, is there a distinction between nature and culture? So he, he delves into the kind of anthropological research, specifically uh, the work of Lévi-Strauss, Claude Lévi-Strauss, who says that it was the prohibition of incest that marked a kind of movement into culture, away from nature, what are often associated with ideas, quite regrettably, of like primitivism, archaism, all of these kinds of isms that are meant to subordinate so-called natural living to cultural living. So Derrida looks into the text of Levi-Strauss who identifies that the prohibition of incest was something that emerged as a means to move into culture or it catalyzed that movement. But Derrida says, well, it, it, there was like a prohibition of incest before that. And it seems weird that we just describe it a certain status at a kind of random point. And in fact, it seems like 
the whole discussion of prohibition didn't exist until we were within culture already. So how can we say that there was this kind of split, this kind of moment in which we move from one to the other and therefore constituted a binary, unless of course the very logic of culture as we understand it today was embedded within that very natural system. Because for Derrida, there isn't like a very neat split from one to the other. In fact, elements of the first can be found in the latter and elements of the latter can be found in the first demonstrating that the binary isn't this kind of sacred thing. It is in fact something that is imposed upon the world to better make sense of it. Now this corresponds to a general logic of what he calls logocentrism. Logocentrism is a focus, a, a center, centering truth through the word of specifically God. Now that demands a whole big exposition and with my discussion of grammatology in a couple of weeks you're going to learn a little bit more about that. But just briefly, often the word of God was associated with a kind of immediacy. So if we spoke, that is words coming out of our mouths, we were demonstrating ourselves to be closer to God than if we wrote something down. Because if we wrote something down, what we were doing was killing language, at least according to many philosophers in the history of philosophy. So there was a kind of privilege afforded to speaking over writing. And with this came a certain emphasis upon, um, you know, a, a, a binary logic as being sacred that was first established in the split between writing and speaking. Now, Derrida says, so, well, I should say, he's already established that this whole split business is totally it's ridiculous but he takes it a step further so he's we know we have this kind of superficial look at deconstruction as being uh, the demonstration of the way that two sides of a binary can super be superimposed onto one another we have the way in which one side and the other side are in constant flux disturbing the idea of there being a kind of like permanent center or split and then we have the way in which the very logic of binaries seems to be belong to a certain phase in human relations or human evolution or, or whatever you'd like to call it. But then he goes a step further and he says, well, if we subscribe to this logic, if we say, okay, binaries exist, let's, let's deal with one uh, that he deals with, that is the split between speech and writing that I just briefly mentioned. He's like, if this exists, it doesn't seem to me that the privileged site, the privileged side, in this case speech, because the word was associated with a kind of presence which was then associated with God, Derrida's like, what if the opposite was the case? What if writing is actually primary? Which might seem totally strange. But he says that in all binary cases, the unprivileged term the one that comes second, and you can do this test yourself. If you list off a number of binaries, chances are the second one you say is always the least privileged one. So we have light dark, we have white black, we have man woman, we have uh, rich poor, we have the uh, hot cold. Like all of these different binaries demonstrate that the one that comes first is most likely gonna be the one that's historically privileged. Derrida says that in fact, 
if we subscribe to this logic, we must concede that it is in fact the unprivileged term that set the conditions for the binary in itself. And how is that? How does that make sense? Well, in the history of philosophy, in the case of speech and writing, writing is associated with a kind of uh, frivolousness, kind of frivolous nature, being almost indeterminable, uh, relating to non-presence. And so in the history of philosophy, in the history of Western thought more generally, Derrida says that writing has been seen as something that is always up for change, always, um, it always risks disturbing truth because it's like a game of broken telephone. If I write something down and two people with two different dialects read it, they're going to see the same word, but they're going to speak it differently. Whereas if I say a word and two people hear it, they're going to be able to repeat the word more truthfully because there won't be a kind of interpretive break between the speaking and the heard in the way that with writing, anyone can see it and interpret it, interpret the words differently because they're always up for a kind of debate. Now, Derrida says, that seems to me like the original condition of all speaking because speaking is itself just another form of representing thought. It's like another way for us to communicate our, our thoughts, emotions, you know, feelings. We use speech which is just in itself a movement away from the tr so-called true thing. So Derrida's like, speech seems to then resemble the way that we characterize writing. It seems to really resemble that thing that we've kind of subordinated to the original point, at least the way that we ascribe uh, speech a kind of originary point, a kind of true, a trueness to it. It's in that way that speech is just another form of writing, and therefore we find in this binary, if we accept that logic, that the writing actually comes before speech. And he calls it Arche writing, which I'll get into in a lot more detail in that episode coming out in a couple of weeks. And then the whole history of philosophy for Derrida is predicated on this split that he says is just totally uh, destined to, I guess, produce bad arguments, which he pretty much says. He kind of shuns the whole course of, of Western philosophy because it's predicated upon some basic axioms that like the appreciation of speech over writing that he says are totally uh, intractable. They, they do not hold when we actually put them under investigation. So the whole task of deconstruction for Derrida is just looking at the way in which we take a certain logic for granted, that is this binary logic, and he just completely turns it on its head. Now I want to say uh, that this is only a kind of brief introduction to this very difficult concept and like I'll develop it a lot more in a couple of weeks with of grammatology but I think it serves as a decent kind of introduction. Now I want to give some suggestions to some works that do deconstruction. Uh, one of them is Can the Subaltern Speak by Gayatri Spivak, who wrote the pretty seminal introduction to of grammatology, and I've I've covered can the subaltern speak on my channel here, so you can go check that out if you want. But what how Spivak uses it is by demonstrating that the split between so-called first and third world people is not nearly as clear 
or it's not nearly as established as we'd like to believe. In fact, the whole idea about the first world seems to have emerged from an originary third worldness that we repress because logocentrism doesn't want to come to terms with the fact that it is predicated not only on a kind of artificial distinction in the form of a binary, but even if we adopt that logic, it is destined to have to come to terms with the fact that the unprivileged subordinated term is in itself the one that is actually originary. And additionally, the work of Eve Sedgwick is very deconstructive in this way, um, dealing with the split between hetero and homosexuality, but I won't get into that in too much detail. But yeah, that more or less covers it. If I did anything wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Um, but yeah, catch you next time.